0: It was awesome.
1: Welcome to The Yarn, a Backpack Media production. Today we continue our Unraveler series with Chris Grabenstein. In each episode, a book creator will take you inside one of their books. Their inspirations, fears, frustrations, triumphs, epiphanies, the whole thing pulled apart. Unraveled. If you have an idea for a season or episode of The Yarn, shoot us an email, theyarn at bkpk.media. I sat down with Chris at NCTE last November in Minneapolis. I learned very quickly that Chris and Mr. Lemoncello are pretty much the same person. In this episode, Chris talks about his process, his first readers, and why he wrote a sequel to Mr. Lemoncello's Library. It's time to unravel Mr. Lemoncello's Library. Olympics.
0: Hi, this is Chris Grabenstein, the author of Mr. Lemoncello's Library Olympics, published by Random House Children's Books. First idea actually came because I do a lot of Skype visits. I did, I think, 200. Uh, Last year And I was doing a Skype visit With some kids who had read Escape from Mr. Lemoncello's library And the bad guy in that book Is Charles Chiltington From the Chiltington family Chiltingtons never lose And so they said to me After Chiltington lost They said I bet Charles Chiltington Has the worst Christmas vacation Of his life And that got me thinking Like oh I, that's right. I, I it's like, Immediately I pictured him sitting because they're rich. They're a rich family sitting in this big home theater in his house watching on a giant screen TV, watching all the kids who beat him starring in these commercials because that was the big prize if he won the escape game. Then I said, oh, I bet he's not the only one who's going, who are these kids? How come they get to star in these commercials? Oh, they won a game at Mr. Lemoncello's library in Ohio, but only kids from Ohio are allowed to play. So I thought there would be like this massive outcry across the country of people sending letters and emails to Mr. Lemoncello and he being Mr. Lemoncello say, yes, they're right. We should have another competition to find the true champions of the library. I always try to make my books fun because uh, I was a reluctant reader. I still am a reluctant reader. And I actually did a school presentation for my uh, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, for the guy who was my. Like, my hero teacher, my ninth grade teacher who got me started. And he was still teaching. He was like 65 or so, and he was still teaching. And I did my school presentation, and the kids were laughing, having a great time. And he said, ah, you did very well. You put on the clown suit. You got them laughing so much, they didn't realize they were learning something. So that's what I kind of try to do with my books is make them so much fun that they just, it's like a movie on spooling in their heads. And when it's all done, it's like, oh, we learned something too. (laughs) My process has changed over the 10 years I've been publishing books. I used to be, because I did improvisational comedy for so long, a pantser. There used to be a combination, are you a planner or a pantser? We used to always say, do you fly by the seat of your pants or do you plan? And now I've, I'm doing so many books, like I'm going to be doing two a year now for Random House, and James Patterson asked me to co-author like three or four books with him a year, that I have become much more of a planner, and I kind of like it. So I, I do, I sit down and I block out a three-act structure, of where I want major turns and things to happen. And I still allow myself freedom within those scenes to make up the stuff that's going to happen. But I know what points I want to hit at certain page numbers. So I've gotten to that point where I've got a pretty cool little outline structure that I use. Uh, I'm such a nerd. I'm always like doing research on like storytelling and things. And you go all the way back to Aristotle. Western civilization has liked its stories told with a beginning, a middle, and an end. You know, that it's, so it's the three-act structure is, I don't know if it's different like in Far East or anything, but in Western civilization, that's how we like our stories. And I also studied a lot of theater history in college, and there was a structure called the well-made play. So there are skeletons that exist in stories, and it's the meat or the, fabric that you put on those skeletons that determine whether it's a good story or not. So for instance, there was this guy named uh, Victor Sardou who wrote these boulevard comedies in France and all the critics called it Sardoodledom because it was so predictable, but he's the guy who came up with a curtain will fall at the end of the first act with a something that gets you to come back after intermission. And people like Ibsen and Chekhov took his structure and made great plays like The Doll's House. So the structure isn't anything to be afraid of, it's what you put on top of the structure. I am such a Virgo. My life is so the same every day. Fred, my dog, gets me up at 6 o'clock, I take him for a half an hour walk. And then uh, I usually go to the gym and do some running and lift some weights. And then I come home, and I eat the exact same thing every day. Two egg whites, a piece of ham on an English muffin. And then I sit down, and I start writing. And uh, we have a two-bedroom apartment in New York City, kind of a small one, 800 square feet and the second bedroom is uh, where i work and i've got walls covered with cork boards and bulletin boards i think every writer wants roll dolls writer's cottage like he had in his backyard where he could put things up and stuff. So that's like my little writer's cottage is that second room. And the walls are covered because I use a lot of pictures for faces and places like uh, my town, Alexandriaville, Ohio is kind of based on this little town called Bowling Green, Ohio. So I got pictures of that town and I got pictures of the library and I got floor plans of Mr. Lemoncello's library. So I remember where things are and I got faces of the characters up there. And so it's cool. So I sit down, and I try to write 2000 new words every day. And I start the day by going over the 2,000 words I wrote the day before, lightly editing, but that's mostly just to get back into the zone. There's been, like, some research done that says, writers, it takes you 20 minutes to sort of, like, dive back into your world where the world takes over and you completely block out the world around you. My wife will say, we're going out to dinner this Saturday. And Saturday will come and she'll go, you ready to go out to dinner? I said, why? What what are we doing? She said, I told you about that. I "I wasn't there. I was in Ohio with Kyle and the kids at the library. So she now knows that. Like he's not in there really. He's, He's off in some world. So then I write my 2000 words. Some days I write a little more. But I find I get a little sloppy after 2,000 words. I start getting a little lazy, so I sort of knock it off. So, some days I can do that in like three or four hours, some days it'll take like eight. It's hard to write a good sequel, I think. I think the hardest part would be like, and we're having another scavenger hunt in the library again, and we got new, you know, it's that. So, the hardest part was coming up with what I thought was a big enough teachable moment, if you will, to uh, to wrap the whole story around. And I started thinking about the word champions, true champions. So Kyle, who loves to win, my hero, thinks a champion is just someone who wins. But then you start thinking about, wait a minute, there's connotations to champion like the knights who were are champions of good and, and, and standing up for people who couldn't stand up for themselves. So a true champion of the library would be someone who would protect freedom of expression. So once I got that hook, then I was off to the races. Uh, my wife is my first reader of everything, but if it's one of my books, I want her to let me know if I fooled her, you know, or if she figured it out too soon and stuff. So I have to wait till the whole thing's done. So I do spend like four or five months like, is this any good? I don't know. And then she reads it, and she sits down for like three days, uh, and she'll give me like a whole yellow legal pad full of notes. And she's really good because we're both reluctant readers. Her attention span is even shorter than mine. So if I bore her, I know I'm going to bore a kid. So she's, I tell her, show me anything that bores you or takes you out of the story. Like we go, what? Where'd that come from? It could be like a, a word that's too big or something that's too frilly with the description. Like it just takes you out of the story. Because I, I really want to get kids sucked in the story that they want to stay up all night underneath their covers with a flashlight. What, one of my major hopes is that it leads to a lot of discussions in classrooms about banned books. Because what happens in the story, not to give too much away, But they're playing these games and some of the games involve looking for certain books and suddenly those books aren't there. And it's because maybe somebody in the town doesn't think anybody should be reading books about that particular subject matter. And I do it in a fun, kind of funny way. And I just hope it'll be like, wow. It's almost a parable in a way. Like It's like, whoa! I don't like that, that someone would take away books just because they don't like them. I'm hoping kids will stand up and say, that's not right. Just because one person doesn't like a book doesn't mean everybody else can't read them. So that's what my big hope is.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Yarn. Thanks to Philip Stead for providing our theme music. Thank you to Random House Children's Books for setting up the interview with Chris at NCTE. Travis and I are always looking for new stories. We want to know, who are your favorite authors, illustrators? What are your favorite books? What questions about children's literature would you like us to explore? Send us an email, theyarn at bkpk.media. Or send us a tweet. I'm at Colby Sharp. Travis is at 100 notes. We can't wait to see what's next.